You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of the podcast. Before we get started, we wanted to mention that our March class is coming up and it's called Why God Died, How Atonement Theories Try to Explain Salvation. Yeah, and it's going to be taught by our friend and nerd in residence, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. As always, the class is pay what you can until the class ends. And then uh, you can download it after that if you sign up later for $25. But if you sign up and you can't make the live class, no worries. You can still do pay what you can. Go ahead and sign up, and then we'll send a link afterward that you can access later. Yeah, and you're asking, where do I sign up? Well, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash atonement. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Faith for Normal People. And today is just me, Pete, and I'll be talking about the historical roots of Christian universalism with none other than Robin Perry. Now, Robin is an associate priest at Worcester Cathedral in England, and he's an editor at Wiffenstock Publishers, and he's written theological books on a range of topics, and several of them deal with the issue of universal salvation in scripture, theology, philosophy, and history. So, don't forget, folks, also to stay tuned at the end of the episode for Quiet Time, where Jared will join me to reflect on the episode, and we'll give insight into our own spiritual journeys. All right, folks, let's dive in. To the extent that all of us creatures are interconnected, and we are, and our sense of who we are and our the integrity of our own being and self is connected to other people. And if they are not redeemed, then none of us can be fully redeemed. For all the world, this seems to be about reconciliation in terms of the restoration of relationships. So to the extent that not all creatures are saved, no creatures are saved. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normalpeople for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Robin, thank you for being on our podcast. So good to have you. Thanks. Lovely to be here. 
Yes, from all the way across the pond, as they say. But, you know, it's it's good for you to be here, I'm sure, someplace else other than, is it rainy there or what? It's snow. It's snowing. It's snowing, okay. but it's not sticking. So it's wet, but it's not. That's uh, just a cruel joke when snow doesn't stick. I know. Who needs snow? That's why I see. So anyway. Speaking of snow, let's talk about Christian universalism. <laughs> that was a bad segue, but we're doing it anyway. So I'm fascinated and have been fascinated with this topic. I know you've written quite a bit about this. And I think it's an interest of a lot of people thinking, it really gets to an issue, I think, of what does it even mean to be Christian and what, what's the hope of Christianity, right? So let's just start with the very basics. How do you define Christian universalism? As simply as I can, <laughs> it is the view that in the end, all creation will be reconciled to God through Christ. Okay. Or you might put it like God achieves God's purpose is for creation, or God wins, sin loses. Yes. That. And so that, you know, for all things being, let's say, reconciled to God, maybe that's a way of putting it, mm-hmm. one does not have to be actively, consciously Christian in any way to participate in God's cosmic plan. Well, everything is part of God's cosmic plan. I mean, all of creation is part of God's cosmic plan. Whether one has to actively participate, consciously participate as a believer in Christ to share in that is an area that Christian universalists have different views about. Okay. So that's a separate question. The core question is, what is Christian universalism? And it's the view that all creation will be reconciled to God through Christ. Mm-hmm. Exactly what a creature has to do to participate in that is an area, a separate question, where universalists have different views. It's interesting that universalists would have different views about what happens to people. And this is probably part of the big misunderstanding that people have. It seems to imply only one option, but you're saying it includes multiple options that people debate. Oh, lots of different views on lots of different issues that uh, universalists have different views. For example, I mean, I'm sure we'll end up talking about hell and yes. uh, post-mortem punishment And universalists have had different views about how to understand that Mm -hmm. and whether anyone will experience it. Most universalists have said they will, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. So there's different views on the atonement and how that works. Some of them fiercely in favor of penal substitution, for example, and others fiercely opposed to it, and a whole bunch of other issues too. So that brings up a question that I think, you know, is an assumption perhaps that many people make that any notion of Christian universalism is unbiblical and heretical because the Bible quote clearly says that that's not the case, right? So maybe we can just start with this. What are if any, what are biblical roots perhaps for thinking in a Christian universalist direction? Right. Because historically, pretty much every Christian universalist thought that what they were saying was biblical. They certainly intended it as such. It's a bit more complicated in recent years, but I guess there's certain biblical texts that at face value appear and have been understood to teach the salvation of all. Perhaps most famously Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Mm-hmm. That's 1 Corinthians 15, which seems to suggest that the same all that die in Adam will be raised in Christ. The text that for me was very influential was Colossians 1, mm-hmm. the Christ hymn, because it seems to tell a story that's very Christ-focused, that begins with the creation of all things, 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and moves through to God reconciling all things the same, all things again, namely everything that's been created, through this blood shed on the cross. And for all the world, this seems to be about reconciliation, which is a term that Paul always uses positively and, and salvifically in terms of the restoration of relationships. Mm -hmm. And making peace through his blood shed on the cross doesn't sound like sending people to hell. <laughs> you know? right, so, right. so there are texts like those which were, and First Corinthians 15 in the early church was very influential that God would be all in all, or as they understood it, in all things, God would be all, which would entail the salvation of those things. Because how could God be all in a creature if that creature's will was rebellious against God and turned away? Mm -hmm. So for God to be all in a creature, that creature's will has to be in submission to God. And if God is all in all, then all creatures would be in that state. And that is the final victory of God. Yeah. Uh, so texts like that or Ephesians 1 about God heading up all things in Christ. So there's that kind of thing. But just as important, I think, is not just texts that appear to explicitly address the issue in a particular way, but that address other important Christian theological beliefs that have an indirect bearing on the issue. So, for example, God is love which tells us something about the nature of God. And for many Christians, this seems to at least push quite strongly in the direction of universal salvation. And it's tied into biblical teachings that God desires to save all creatures or all people and so on. The idea that God is good, the idea that God defeats sin, and that all that the sin and damage and death that is unleashed through Adam is undone through Christ. It's these kinds of teachings, the defeat of evil and so on, that seem to many universalists have led them towards belief in universal salvation. And it's why I think this idea keeps popping up again and again, and sometimes quite spontaneously, almost being reinvented again and again, because the impulse behind it is very deeply held, basic mm -hmm. Christian beliefs about divine goodness, about divine ability to get God's will done about divine victory, these kinds of things, when you put them together, make it difficult to think how eternal damnation for some or many creatures even fits the story. Mm -hmm. How does it fit in? It, it sort of seems out of place. And that's why I think the idea is difficult to squash because it arises from deeply held gospel instincts. Gospel instincts as well as some highly suggestive passages in the New Testament. Yeah, that's right. And it's not, as people often tell me, oh, you just think God's nice. You just want God to be like some nice liberal person or something. It's not that. It's far deeper than that. Right. It's not just, well, I don't like this God. I want, I'm going to invent another one in my own image. It's actually grappling with, again, not just biblical passages, but maybe the nature of God, if God is love. Oh, Absolutely. And the story of the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ. I mean, for the early church, it was fundamental that Christ came as a human person to represent human persons before God, and that his death was on behalf of human persons, all of them, as was his resurrection. Mm -hmm. And as he participates in our condition, so we participate and share in his resurrection. And the resurrection of Christ then becomes the future of humanity. They understood it. This is the victory of God. This is salvation. This is the transformation of humanity in this particular person 
But the consequence of that is that all particular persons will share in that resurrection, ultimately. Right. And so it was this belief that Christ represented all and died and rose to achieve his purposes for all creatures and the conviction that God would bring about his purposes in the end that was the driver, I think, behind different versions of Christian universalism. And it recurs again and again and again throughout history. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in And you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you, for service, and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. It does, and I, and I want to get into that in a bit, just, just maybe hitting some of the highlights, the voices in church history that have espoused some notion like this. Before we get there, though, I can imagine, I can hear the voices inside of my head and inside the heads of others listening where they might say, yeah, all that's great, but there are other voices in the New Testament that seem to suggest not universalism, but something very exclusivistic. So maybe if there's a passage or two you, you want to bring up, that's great. But how do you address the multivocality of the New Testament on this and any one of a number of other issues we get to discuss when we talk about the New Testament? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Multivocality is a good word because we do have text that seem at face value to go in different directions. And so the issue becomes precisely, the hermeneutical issue is precisely, well, what do you do about that? How do you handle that tension that there is seemingly in the text? And there are different ways that they've been handled historically and still today within Christian universalism and without it. But the point is that everybody's doing this. Even if you're an eternal tormentor, you're having to do this. And the way the eternal tormentors will do it is they'll say, well, we've got these hell texts and we've got these seeming universalist texts, but they can't mean, they can't actually teach universalism because they would contradict the hell texts. And we know what those mean, right? right? We've got that locked down. So that's our Archimedean point, and everything else is pivoted around that. And so the universal salvation texts and all the other themes I mentioned earlier are reinterpreted to fit and make them consistent or attempt to do so with the hell text. And in part, it's the failure of that project, the inability to sort of warp these other texts and themes to cohere with the hell text that keeps pushing people back to think, what are there other ways of doing this? Mm-hmm. Historically, many universalists simply reversed the polarity of the neutron flow, as Doctor Who might say, and said, <laughs> well, what if we switch the Archimedean point? Let's, or even sort of hypothesize, let's suppose that the universalist texts mean what they appear to say. Are the judgment texts compatible with those? And can they be understood in ways that fit that? Or are there ways of holding these two in tension? And there are different ways that people have tried to do that. I'd mention just one, because I've always found it very fascinating. John A.T. Robinson, infamous Anglican bishop, best known for some of his stuff in the early 60s, wrote a book called In the End, God. Mm. And his question driving it was, for God to be the God revealed in Jesus Christ, and the eschaton, the eschatology, is really just a projection of what has to be true of God if God is to be the God revealed in the gospel. And so he says, well, universalism is that. But the way he deals with these two strands of text is he says, look, they don't fit together. You can't take them both literally and make them into a coherent picture. But they're both true. So, and he thinks the hell texts teach eternal conscious torment. Okay, I don't, but he does. And he says, look, here's a bunch of texts where there's a threat of eternal torment. And he said, these are true. Because these tell us what the natural end of a life that is directed away from God permanently, there is no salvation in that way of life. And the only destiny that it can have is one of total and final alienation. And the person facing the challenge of the gospel is confronted with a real choice where that is the alternative, you see. But of course, as a matter of fact, it won't happen because that would be impossible. And so the universalist texts, and this is my particular reading of his reading, mm-hmm. so, so <laughs> the universalist texts tell us what God is has to be to be the God of Jesus Christ. But the other texts tell us about the real truth that's existentially true in the for the person making that decision, even if it won't be their experience. Now, I'm more inclined to think, well, Okay, let me just say this. However you handle this, it's us doing it. The Bible doesn't tell us how to do this. Mm-hmm. So any way of theologically handling and holding these texts together, and there's a bunch, is us. And we just have to own that. 
and acknowledge it. You know, it's not like God told me this is the right way of doing it. We're trying with some Although integrity. some people say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. they say it, but I just don't believe them. <laughs> right. This whole thing, I mean, one thing that's coming across loud and clear, and I think it's extremely valuable, is just remembering this is a like most theological issues, this is a complicated matter. And simply to say, well, Scripture clearly says, well, yeah, in that verse, first of all, it may not be as clear as you think, but yeah, granted, this seems to suggest something, but there are other places too, once again, that we have to reckon with. And I think just keeping that in mind can open up theological dialogue rather than closing it down. Yeah, but- exactly. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, when you're looking at particular texts, and so you'd always have to, let's look at the particular texts, you know, what do they actually say? So, for example, does kalas in Ionion, eternal punishment, mm-hmm. what does that actually mean? We just assume, we think of it in English, eternal punishment. Well, that lasts forever, or maybe it's even timeless. But there are many reasons to doubt that you can put that much freight, or that much, that the word can hold that much weight. And we know lots and lots of biblical uses of Ion and Ionios where the thing clearly has a beginning and end. It's a sort of period of unspecified time, often long enduring. And so you can't say, well, that necessarily lasts forever. Right. I think often in that text of the sheep and the goats, I don't think that text is even asking the question of how long does this last? I mean, we're talking about the punishment of the age to come, the life of the age to come, the life that takes place in and is fitting to the age to come. How long does it last? is not a question the text is addressing. And so the texts aren't always answering the questions we want answered. Mm -hmm. That text is addressing a question of, you know, whatever you do for the least of these, you know, being accountable to God for how you treat other people. That's what Jesus is interested in. He's not interested in settling doctrinal debates on hell. Which is something else we need to bear in mind. (laughs) Well, exactly right. And, you know, the, the sheep and the goat, it strikes me as the focus there is on this coming kingdom, which is already in their midst. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be a part of this kingdom or don't you? Do you want to be the outside looking in or do you want to be a part of this? And that's this age to come, right? This is what's happening in our midst here. And just to reiterate your point, this may not have anything to do with what we're debating. And again, it's a reminder I think to all of us that there's much more here than citing passages from an English Bible. Always. That sounds really condescending, but it's not condescending. It's like you have to be able to do algebra to do certain kinds of equations. There are certain things that if you really want to see how the sausage is made, you can't do it from a translation. You have to study the original languages and what eternal, you know, all that, that Greek root, what it means it may not be what we've been conditioned to think that it means based on either fundamentalist or evangelical or other kinds of Christian iterations, right? Yeah. So, and I mean, yeah. and the early, the universalists in the early church very happily used this language of eternal punishment. <laughs> you know, it's biblical languages from Jesus. They were mm-hmm. more than happy to use it. They just didn't think it meant what we assume it means. Right, and, right. And that in itself might send off a few alarm bells and make us think, well, are we sure we got it right? Well, how, explain that. What did some of the early uh, church fathers, for example, what did they mean by eternal punishment, if not 
eternal <laughs> in our sense of the word. Well, of course, they didn't use, they didn't speak English, so they didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Thank you for that reminder too, Robin. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so if uh, the Greek fathers, well, so Origen, for instance, will use the Greek biblical language to describe this punishment. So Colas and Ionion in this instance, and that's what he'll talk about. And he often won't even qualify it or mitigate it or say, of course, I don't mean this. It's only in certain contexts where he explains that God's punishment has to be understood in a manner fitting for God. So this is the important qualification for these folk, that whatever it is, it has to be appropriate for a God who is good and loving and so yeah, on. So, right. so a purely retributive punishment that served no redemptive good would not be appropriate. So they thought, they often saw uh, punishment as having an educative function and often as self-inflicted. It depends. There were different traditions as to how the wrath of God was understood, for example. And the problem is that wrath is generally understood as a vice, not a virtue. Yes. And so when you're talking about God's wrath, that immediately sets off alarm bells. Well, what could that mean for a perfectly good or perfect God to be wrathful? So basically two different traditions in the early church. So on the one hand, you have folk who go, well, God is wrathful, but it's a divine kind of wrath, which isn't like our kind of wrath. You know, it, it would have to be heavily qualified. And on the other hand, you had another bunch of folk who said, actually, it's not describing anything that's going on in God at all. What it's describing is, from a human perspective, when you're alienated from God and experiencing in your conscience and so on some of the what it feels like to be alienated from God, it feels like God's angry with you. It feels like someone's cross with you. So the language about God's wrath is actually a way of talking about how it's analogous to feeling like someone's angry with you. But actually, mm -hmm. they were saying, it's not telling us anything about what God's feeling, because God is so other, you could, it would be inappropriate. To, so that tradition carried on. I mean, you will still find folk arguing that and the other. So both of those traditions for understanding divine wrath exist to this day, but did so throughout the history of the church. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem of talking about God. Of course. Like, what? <laughs> I think that's a really good point, Rob. And what, what do we mean when we say God, you know, and, and what is entailed by that in, in terms of talking about God? We're right away in a wonderful conversation as far as I'm concerned, but still it's hard to like after a five minute debate by citing a passage to nail it. Oh yeah. Like this is the character of God. And this is why I think the question of Christian universalism and other related issues, I don't know how you feel about this, but in my opinion, it's actually the continued discussion, which is the doing of theology and trying to understand rather than simply closing down these very important discussions that people today want to have these discussions because they're sensing a problem as well that you said it keeps coming up i think i mean you know better than i do i think it's very mm -hmm. much up mm -hmm. today yeah Yeah, so, you know, I hate to ask this question because it could take us three hours to answer. We don't have that much time. But can you give us a – we've had Brad Jerzak on talking about hell, for example, a, a few years ago. But what does hell mean, briefly stated, from some Christian universalist point of view? Mm. I know. You're smiling at me like, like I just – Well, I know. can't speak for everybody. <laughs> I suppose – 
let me sort of see if I can fumble and stumble my way towards something uh, here. The language I often use is eschatological punishment. Part, okay, so the word hell, it comes loaded. It's not a biblical word. I'm happy to use it, but I would like to explain it or qualify it. Wait a minute. Hell is all over Matthew's gospel. You're right. It what is. do you mean it's not a biblical word? <laughs> not in the original languages, of course. There you go. All right. Yeah, so it's not a biblical word. It's a way that various different words, often Gehenna, for example, in the Gospels is, is translated, and there we open a whole can of worms, perhaps only worms that consume and... <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Good one, uh, it's a, Just as a little incidental thing, I mean, that's an example of one of those texts, the fire that, you know, the unquenchable fire, which mm -hmm. is taken as obviously teaching never-ending hell. But all of that is, which is language from Jeremiah, is the idea of a fire that does its job. You can't put it out. You can't stop it doing its thing. It's, it doesn't mean it lasts forever and ever. Right, right. Uh, right. I mean, Jeremiah's unquenchable fire isn't still burning, but it, it couldn't be stopped till it had finished its job. So Probably because I, of the Babylonian conquest and all that kind of stuff he's talking about. And yeah. It's gonna God's God's wrath to use that language is gonna do its work and and you're not gonna be able to stop it. Exactly. Exactly. But, yeah. Which again alerts us to another important point just in passing about rhetoric. It's very important when reading these texts not to overinterpret them as teaching sort of literal doctrine. They are rhetorically powerful attempts to persuade people. And often you'll get this language of destroyed without trace, and then I will restore them, or whatever. You think, what? Yeah. <laughs> but that just alerts us to being very careful not to overread these things as if they're systematic theology, and they're never meant yeah. to be such. They are, however, genuine warnings, and we are meant to receive them. Well, I say we. The audience are meant to receive them as such. Anyway, what is hell? Hell is, in the first instance, eschatological punishment. I think we'd need to explore what punishment may or may not be, and I wouldn't have a totally fixed view on that. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think I don't feel uncomfortable with it including elements of retribution, at least insofar as punishment it has to be proportionate to and fitting for a crime. And that is to treat someone with respect as a creaturely free agent who is responsible. So I don't have a problem with that, although I don't think a retributive punishment could be everlasting because mm -hmm. that punishment wouldn't fit the crime <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But I also think in scripture, punishment is often, perhaps usually, seen as having some educative function. And so I'd like to say that that would have to factor in. Now, whether you want to see this as a sort of consequence, I mean, a lot of the fathers saw it as the burning of the conscience. It's not like literal fire. It's the torment of realizing what you've done or gradually realizing what you've done and the people you've hurt and how you've estranged yourself from God and etc. This stuff feels like burning. It feels like you're being consumed. There's a wonderful description in the novel by George MacDonald, Lilith, where Lilith, she's the sort of devil figure, though she's not the devil. And she is redeemed, but she goes through this various stages of this hell mm -hmm. into the outer darkness, effectively. And it's a very powerful and psychologically astute description of her wrestling with a false sense of autonomy. 
and what it means to be free and to do what she wants to do and actually realizing that she's not freed herself but actually destroyed her freedom and the sort of agonizing throes of getting to the place where she surrenders and actually becomes free is liberated you know is um it's quite powerful and that's a way of that's the way he was trying to talk about hell well is is it fair to say robin that in what you're describing with mcdonald and also what you're thinking that hell has a redemptive function yeah it well in a certain a way a purifying function or something like yeah, that yeah in maybe? a certain way so the way i talk about it in the end of that four views book is that hell is just a, a way of talking about the presence of god god is light god is fire god is Depending on what state we're in, that presence feels like heaven, or it feels like purgatory, or it feels like hell. And that's because we, and this is me doing theological construction. I mean, this is not, let me give you a proof text for this. Um, I think you could say this is a view that grows out of scripture, but it's not a view that's the biblical view. But I do think it's biblical. So hell then can play an educative function insofar as it can alert us, it can make us aware, and hopefully would, of our condition and can make us turn, reorientate, you know, ourselves, turn towards God. And then that hell becomes experienced as purgatory. But it's not that the hell is saving us as such. It's the, the work of Christ that is salvific. But hell, yeah, it's educative. It's not that God's torturing us into accepting Christ. Accept Jesus or I'll burn you with a Mm -hmm. blowtorch or whatever. (laughs) It's more that if we cut ourselves off from the source of life, and God might shield us from some of the reality of that for now, and as Tom Talbot says, but I guess post-mortem punishment is where God stops protecting us from the reality of the kind of lives we choose. And the experience or the realization of that can turn us towards accepting the mercy that God offers us in Christ. So I think I'd try and frame hell in that kind of context. The point is, however you do it, for a universalist, at least for those universalists who believe that people do go to experience eschatological punishment, which is most Christian universalists, for those ones, the point is, It doesn't last forever, because Mm -hmm. if that was the end of the story of the creature, then Christ's redemptive work for those creatures has failed. And the sin has forever left its mark on the story of creation in a way that defaces There's no true redemption. There's no complete redemption. And to the extent that all of us creatures are interconnected, and we are, and our sense of who we are and the integrity of our own being and self is connected to other people. And if they are not redeemed, then none of us can be fully redeemed. So to the extent that not all creatures are saved, no creatures are saved. Unfortunately, we need to bring this to um, an end here. But one of the criticisms I've heard, I think you're sort of addressing it here, is that many say that any sense of a, a universalist hope, it neuters the gospel. And I suspect you don't feel that way. No. <laughs> That's a great answer. It doesn't neuter that? the gospel. No. It, well, what's the gospel? Well, I mean, there's different exactly ways we it. could frame it, but yeah. you know, it's got something to do with God coming in Christ and and redeeming the world. Right. How is that neutered by saying that God actually achieves God's purposes? How does that neuter the message? 
Right. It all depends, again, as you said, on how you define gospel, whether gospel is the good news is God saves you from eternal conscious torment. That is, that's a dogmatic assertion that's made by people of good faith. I mean, they're not bad people. That's that's how they understand it. So when you take the threat of hell away, of, of, of that kind of hell away, then what's the gospel saving you from? Well, maybe from yourself. Yeah. And what's it saving you for? Yes, See, yes. Because it's the gospel is about bringing creation. So, so the way, and this is the way the early church Christian universalists understood it: creation is made with a telos, with a destiny, with a goal, and that goal, however we might construe it, has got something to do with being united to God, reaching one's destiny in God. And there's different ways we might frame that in terms of deification or theosis or whatever, but not becoming God, but being united to God in some deep and profound way so that all of creation has that orientation. Mm -hmm. And so redemption was understood as sin being a spanner in the works, stopping creation reaching this destiny. In Christ, God deals with that so that the world can get to the goal. That's what we're saved for. That's what Christ is doing with us. It's not just about, hey, believe in Jesus so that you don't have to suffer forever. Yes. <laughs> that, that, if that's all it is, <laughs> that's rubbish. Well, no, not suffering forever is quite good. Yeah. I'm all in favor of that. But, but we're saved for God, for relationship, for union with God and so on. And my worry with folk who go, hey, why would anyone want to be a Christian? if they didn't think they were going to hell as an alternative, you'd think, man, do you think Jesus is that rubbish? Yeah. You right, know, that, exactly, that there's yeah. no reason why on earth you'd want to follow Jesus unless it was a get-out-of-hell card. And plus, of course, you know, in a sense, I mean, this I wouldn't put it like this, but it is a get-out-of-hell card. <laughs> um, but a different kind of way of looking at hell, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, point, so, yeah. exactly. And so this, there's a million and one reasons why following Jesus is a good thing. Because he is, I mean, we are created for that. It's the very core of our being. As Augustine says, not exactly a universalist. Actually, he was, and then he changed his mind. Be that yeah. as it may, <laughs> our hearts are restless until they find yeah. rest in you. So there is this sort of orientation of creatures, according to Christian theology, for union with God, right? So the very heart of our beings, even if we try and suppress that, has this orientation towards union with God. Why would you need hell as the only thing to make you think that was worthwhile? Right. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a good point to end on too, that why are we even phrasing the question the way that we do? And, you know, I, we've just skimmed the surface in this episode, Robin, and I think there are a lot of things I'd like to maybe revisit with you at some point that we can talk about more, maybe some specific views at some other point about certain people mm -hmm. in the history mm -hmm. of the church. Uh, you've mentioned a couple, Origin for one, and and I think just getting some of that down would be very valuable. But for another time, mm -hmm. I think, Robin, sure, another yeah. time. Thank you so much for being with us here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And now for Quiet Time. With Pete and Jared. All right. Well, here we are talking about universalism, eternal conscious torment, all that kind of stuff. So let me, let's, let's start here. Did you, Jared, ever believe in eternal conscious torment? For sure. I couldn't even get that question out. You're nodding your head. 
yeah. furiously. Of, so, of course. Okay. Yeah, it was the only way to think about hell. And it was at the forefront of our theology, which was getting people to avoid hell. That was kind of the whole point. Not even so much get into heaven as it was avoid hell. That's kind of the, you know, youth group way of doing things is you just kind of literally like scare the hell out of people. That's what you're trying to do. So, yeah, I absolutely did believe in eternal conscious torment. However, it's always interesting because I feel like, do you really believe in it? Because I feel like if you really believed in it, it would kind of consume your whole life. Yeah. Like getting your family and friends, like it's almost like if they were going into a burning building. It would be an all-consuming passion. Yeah, I would think so. So, yeah, I believed in it, but it's almost so big. It didn't have any practical implications other than... Mm-hmm. So you didn't really, for you, growing up, hell was consistent with the character of God. It's what yeah. God's about. Yeah, well, it was this justice piece that was always at the forefront, was for God to be just, it's sort of like, there was holiness and justice. So for God to be holy means he cannot be around anything unholy, ever. And since God's eternal, you can't spend eternal life with God in heaven you would have to spend eternity apart from God because you can't be in God's presence and be unholy. And that's what we are as sinners is unholy. So without Jesus stepping in on your behalf, mm-hmm. you're stuck in your unholiness, which is to be separated from God forever. Which is a very juridical way of thinking, but that's mm-hmm. that was normal. And in the way I grew up, it was also Old Testament. Like that's how it was right. thought about. It was like consistent with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Right. I was like Leviticus and the holiness of the tabernacle right. and anything that would disturb the holiness has to be addressed sacrificially or taking a time out from the camp. Yeah. Stuff like that. So, right. Yeah, so. so that was kind of, that's how it was always worded. Which so how'd like you get out of that? Said. Cause you don't believe that anymore, right? You don't, no. do you? No, I, what changed my mind? That's a good question. I don't know. At some point it didn't, it's always the first thing to go in my mind. It's like, why would I believe in it if I don't have to? And so once there was room in my way of viewing the Bible and a room in my theology for it not to exist, it was the first thing to go. Mm-hmm. Because why would I, if I had this view of God that eventually became irreconcilable with that, and yet I had to hold it because the Bible said it. And then once I realized maybe the Bible doesn't say it, mm-hmm. well, that was easy. It was an easy thing to let go of. So cool. what about you? Well, what about me? Um, Okay, I probably did believe in eternal conscious torment sort of as a default, but I never thought about it. And I never looked at other people and said, you know, if you don't think like I do, you're going to go to hell. I wasn't raised that way. That wasn't Mm -hmm. my upbringing. And I sort of came to that stuff a little bit later, like in my late teens and 20s. It never really grabbed a hold of me. It was there. And if you had asked me, I'd say, yeah, I believe that. But I just started to see, I think it was irreconcilable with not just the Bible. Actually, it is, you can reconcile that idea with parts of the Bible. Yeah. There's no, let's not, let's not kid ourselves here. But for me, it became unimaginable in light of, it just didn't explain my reality at all. And I can't imagine, you know, Carl Sagan and the pale blue dot soliloquy, folks, if you've never heard that, and I actually have it in The Sin of Certainty, but you should listen to it. But I remember that throwing me for a loop. Like you have a picture of the earth, you just keep going further and further away. And then you pass the planets. And by the time you get to Jupiter, you can't even see the earth anymore. And I remember thinking, I don't think God has an ax to grind 
with this little planet and is just eager to toss people into eternal conscious torment. And then that didn't make sense because, you know, as many people have said, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, so to speak, you know, Mm -hmm. so. All right. Well, I think there's a question related to that that I think people have a hard time putting their arms around because, like I said, for me, salvation, the concept of salvation depended on a hell of some kind Mm -hmm. because that's what you're saved from. So what for you, as you let go of that now, what does salvation mean for you personally? Well, I think, see, Robin put it really well in the episode. People are always thinking, what do you save from, but what do you save for? So I feel like I'm being saved from my own inclinations, my own dysfunctional coping patterns that make my life miserable. You know, I think of the story of Zacchaeus, you know, in the tree, and he had this moment of conversion where he I'm going to give half my stuff away. That's a real conversion. And, you know, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. It's not, and now because you did that, if you die tonight, you know where you're going. That's not it. It's just, you're saved from yourself. And that's something I know that I need some saving from, right? So I look at it more that way than, you know, using the courtroom metaphor, getting a juridical kind of contractual thing that if you do this, then you'll go to a good place, or if you don't, you'll go to a bad place. So, yeah, that's how I think of salvation, you know, and how the cross fits into that. That's a whole podcast or two. Mm-hmm. We don't have to get into that now, but that's, you know, people have thought about that. Though. These are not new questions, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm in that camp that sees salvation a little bit differently and still ties Jesus to that, even if I don't really fully understand it, which I'm really happy to say I don't understand it. Right. And that's a great place to end. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to the BibleForNormalPeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Hunning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub. Okay, just um, making sure. I have, a, I have something to tell you, Pete. <laughs> I figured this would be the episode for it. I believe in hell, Pete, mm-hmm. and you're going there. <laughs> you're actually the reason I started believing in hell again. again I, I needed a place for you. Um, <laughs> I, I need to conceptually handle <laughs> Pete ends. There must be a hell. That's um, good.